Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. Hey folks, I begin tonight's episode with an apology. There will be no new episodes this week. We spent the weekend and all day Monday with friends here at the lake and later in wonderful Palm Springs. So long story short, I ran out of time. But I did dust off the previously unlocked and previously Patreon-only episode, Monsters Among Us Beyond number 53, for your listening pleasure. And for those Patreon supporters, there will be a brand new Beyond episode this evening. An episode full of ghosts, premonitions, and strange screams in the forest. So to catch that episode, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Monsters Among Us podcast or just search Monsters Among Us Podcast in the search bar. $5 a month gets you instant access to tonight's bonus content, plus 60-plus more episodes. And you can cancel at any time. Now, without further ado, I present to you Monsters Among Us Beyond, number 52. Already in progress. But we're back here in the studio now. And it's time to get spooky. But as I often do, when I'm pressed for time, I'm relying on an old trick that I came up with in the first season. This episode's also going to be a grab bag. Now, I cheated a bit on this one. These are all pre-listened to. These are all edited down. But I haven't written anything for any of them yet. So instead of sitting down and laboring over a script, I'm just going to spit out my thoughts as they come. Thoughts on calls, like that of Brian, out of the state of Alabama. Hey Derek, my name is Brian. I'm from Mobile, Alabama, and this is where this story takes place. I'm going to go ahead and give it a title called The Marble Spirit. And you'll understand why I think. Anyway, it starts with me being young, 16, 17, this is around 1990. And I am seeing a girl that I truly love. And, you know, her mother leaves one night or overnight. And, of course, I sneak out and I go to her house. We were about to get, of course, intimate and everything. And she stops me and she says, look, I just want you to know that throughout my life, there has been a presence that has been around me. And I inquired about more. And she goes, well, it tries to envelop me. It tries to gain control of me. And I've always been able to fight it off, but it's always been there. Now, this is the first time that I've ever actually dealt with anything paranormal. And I shrug it off because I just want to be with her, you know, etc. So let's fast forward a couple of years. We've been dating. And she and I go on a camping trip with her family. And we're gone for about a week and some change. A week and two or three days. Now, we went to Florida. So we went west. 
And the story I'm about to tell you happens when we're coming from the west towards the east, and we're crossing Mobile Bay. If you Google Mobile Bay Bridge or Mobile Bay, you'll see where I'm talking from. Anyway, so we're crossing the bridge. It's about 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. And the nearest car in front of us is, you know, about a football field's length ahead of us. And this light shoots from underneath it, and it's hauling ass. I mean, I'm going 60 or 70 east, and it's probably going that plus west. And it's a foot off the ground-ish. And when it gets to my car, it jumps over the hood, and it shoots through the windshield. And it goes through the back seat. Now, she and I both looked at one another. And, of course, I look in the back seat or I look in the back window. I look in the rearview mirror, and there's nothing there. But, you know, our eyes immediately locked when this happened. And we were stunned, and then, bam, this absolutely horrifying screaming wail, scream, whatever, is, like, in my head. This is Dolby Digital 2000 kind of stuff. I mean, if it were audible, it would have probably busted my eardrums, but it was in my head and it was just, you know, it was just there. So we look at one another and she's like, do you hear that? And I'm like, F yeah, I hear that. I mean, how do I not hear that? So this continues on the whale screaming, whatever dies off after probably maybe 10, 15 seconds. And if you look on a map and you take Mobile Bay Bridge and you do it to the center of Mobile, it's probably about 20 miles and, you know, it's late at night. So transit was pretty easy to get from the point A to point B. This happens probably seven times from Mobile Bay Bridge to my subdivision. And uh, my subdivision has probably about you know, 50 houses in, a, in this circle, whatever. But every time this happens, she and I lock eyes, and she and I have these, you know, nod at one another, look at one another, and you knew that it was on or or if it was off, meaning that it was screaming or not inside our heads. But it was inside both our heads. So we get to the subdivision, and it was like once we hit the barrier of the subdivision, it seemed to just dissipate. Uh, And then 20 houses in, you know, I pull into my driveway, and it felt like whatever was happening had completely dissipated. My girlfriend at the time, she was like, I hear it again. Don't you hear it? I'm like, no, it's gone. Why are you lying to me? And she said, look, I'm just trying to check because I've never in my life, you know, experienced something like this with anybody else. You know, she had told me about it, but, you know, she never experienced anything like this before. So anyway, I'm going to go back to the point where when this light came on the bridge. It was the size of a marble. It had a red aura around it, and it disappeared when it got into the backseat. I don't know. It was just very weird. So looking back, and I'm thinking about it, and I kind of hinted on it, but she and I really hadn't left Mobile for years. She was in a private school, extracurricular activities and whatnot, and me too. I played in all sorts of tournaments. So we never really left Mobile for an extended amount of time. So after listening to your podcast and thinking about it for a while, you know, wanting to call in, of course, I have to give it a prosaic explanation. Of course, it's not prosaic because it's not, it's very weird. But she told me that she had a presence in her life to begin with. She had never left Mobile in the time that we started dating. I'm thinking that when we went on this trip and came back, this thing was looking for her, waiting for her, yearning for her. And whenever we crossed that bridge, I think that body of water like sparked something off because, I mean, it was hauling ass toward us. So I, I don't know if it was a jealous something spirit. There was no male-female. She never gave it any kind of male-female. You know, she said, it is here. You know, and whenever we started dating, she said, it was a presence. There was no male-female. Anyway, 
that's my first paranormal experience and my other paranormal experiences also with other women. I think for some reason I'm a conduit in that sort of sense. I'll call back with that in another night, but there you go. I've been waiting to hear something like that. I'm currently, again, season five. I'm trying to catch up. It's going to be a while, so if you do play my, you know, my story, it'll probably be a year and a half before I get there. But, like everybody else says, man, awesome podcast. I play it in front of others, and pretty cool, because when I do, they open up, and I get some cool stories, too. Peace. Talk about excess baggage. That's a tough pill to swallow, no matter how level your skepticism is. But it sounds like you handled it pretty well, Brian. So kudos. You know, this story actually makes me think of two separate uh, legends, I guess we'll call them. The Elmore Rider in Elmore, Ohio. It's just south of Toledo, and just outside of Bowling Green, which is where I went to college. I spent many a nights in that tiny town waiting for this spectral motorcycle rider to come flying by. Now, legend said he looks like a ball of light. But another thing Brian's story reminds me of is the case of Sheriff Val Johnson. Back on August 27th of 1979, a strange light hit his police cruiser while he was out on patrol. It was 1.40 a.m. Deputy Sheriff Val Johnson was on patrol in rural Marshall County when suddenly he saw a bright light a few feet above ground level two miles down the road. I traveled about a mile and the light seemed to uh, intercept me, so to speak. Came, uh, came right upon me. It was painful. The, the light was extremely brilliant and painful. I closed my eyes and I heard the sound of breaking glass and that's the last I remember. Whatever it was came extremely fast. He didn't have time to be scared. He doesn't know what it was. I have no idea. It's truly unexplainable to me or uh, unknown to me. Johnson was unconscious for 40 minutes before he radioed for help and was taken to the hospital. A doctor and later an eye specialist confirmed that Johnson had suffered mild welder or flash burns to his eyes. Even stranger, both Johnson's wristwatch and the electric clock in his patrol car had mysteriously stopped for 14 minutes. I found that clip while we were listening to Brian's story. But if you're interested, there's tons of coverage on YouTube. And I know I've mentioned this in the regular feed once before, but I think you can see the parallel. Oh, and that clip was courtesy of the Minnesota Historical Society. Now, it seems that many people lean alien, at least with this Val Johnson case. But it sounds like Brian is leaning more ghost. Regardless, the reoccurring phenomenon Brian experienced makes me think others out there may have seen the exact same thing. So if you did... Please give our hotline a call at 1 888 608 night. That's 1 888 608 6444. Thanks again, Brian, for taking the time to share. Now it's time for this week's rebuttal. And for this one, we head up to the state of Montana, where Corey has some information he'd like to bestow upon us. Hi, this is Corey from Montana. This is not a cryptid story. It's just a insightful reply to the nice lady that was told to turn around at gunpoint on the Wyoming Highway. My entire CDL career has been basically Montana, Wyoming, Colorado area. And the one thing that you'll note a lot around this area is uh, military activity and nuclear movement. You know, if, if Montana and Wyoming seceded from the Union... They'd be a very powerful nuclear country in their own right. But when it comes to their transport and their activities, they do not play around. Being told to go away at gunpoint is fairly common. For instance, I used to run to Great Falls, Montana a lot, and you'd get stuck behind these military convoys, and it's it's agonizing. You're doing 50, 55 miles an hour in a 70, 75-mile-an-hour zone, and you can't pass the guys, and... I got a little impatient one day, and a lot of times when they're moving nuclear stuff, they'll have two semi-trucks surrounded by armored trucks with guns out of the top, 
and you know, he basically got a decoy truck and then a real truck. And uh, I tried to pass him on a hill one day, and you, you know, you get in a semi truck and you, you get a little bit of an ego behind you. And, and I'll tell you what, that goes away real quick when you get two fifty caliber machine guns pointed at you. Those armored trucks, you know, there's four or five armored, not the Humvees, they got a different armored dually truck now. Kind of looks like a cargo van. But they, they will moving roadblock you in two lanes and slow you down away from the convoy with their giant 50 cal machine guns pointed at you. And, you know, they, they don't need to say anything. You get the, you get the message real quick. So uh, I, needless to say, I was a little bit behind on my schedule that day. But, I, you know, I just wanted to say that, you know, although sure it could have been something, you know, on the outer brinks of uh, creatures or UFO stuff. On all honesty, it was probably just uh, a military operation that got blown over in the wind because it is not uncommon to get 100-mile-an-hour gusts of wind in Wyoming. You can look it up. The wind, some of the windy areas in Wyoming are insane. It's very common to get a truck blown over. And like I said, if that were to happen with something sensitive, yeah, they'd shut the whole road down without even thinking twice about it and then make the Wyoming Highway Patrol do their grunt work, basically. So, yeah, I just wanted to call in and tell you that, so, you know, that's, that's a realistic possibility of what happened to those people that day. Thanks. Thanks, Corey. You know, I was unable to find the call that he was referring to, but from my recollection, it was a woman driving down the freeway, the highway, the interstate, if you will, somewhere in Wyoming. And she came upon a roadblock, and there was something, I think as Corey mentioned, leaning over, laying in the grass, as she thought might have resembled some sort of craft. But the meat and potatoes of the story was that she was forced to turn around at gunpoint, I believe, which understandably rattled her. It just goes to show you that these calls don't have to have a monster to terrify you. And it just makes you think that this could literally happen to any of us. It kind of just goes to show that sometimes with these calls, you don't need a monster at all. Everyday life can be terrifying enough. Thanks again, Corey, for setting us straight. Now then, this next one takes us to the state of Pennsylvania. Lauren, the mic is yours. Hi, Derek. This is Lauren. I'm calling from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and I just wanted to call in with a weird sighting in the sky that I had. I was out about two weeks ago walking my dog. It's about 10 o'clock at night, and I live out in the country, so there are not a lot of street lights or anything of that nature. Now, I do live within 30 miles of an airport, so I am fairly used to seeing different kind of aircraft and what their lights look like at nighttime. I've seen it a lot before, so I kind of had to take that into account for this. I was out walking my dog. It was Like I said, it was a little later at night, and I looked up into the sky and saw this giant triangle of light, and they were bright orange, bright orange lights. So I knew they weren't uh, like a star or anything of that nature because it just wasn't the right color and it didn't move. I was walking my dog kind of around the back roads where I live and it never moved the whole time I was out walking my dog, which was about 20 minutes. And right before I finished up and was taking my dog back inside, I decided I'm going to check and see if it's still there. I was going to get my brother to come out and see it. And I looked and it is just gone like gone nowhere to be found it didn't move to another place in the sky it just disappeared from where it had been i hope you like the story i have a couple other spooky stories working in healthcare. i'm gonna call in and thanks so much for everything you do bye thank you laura you know what i really like about this case is that this craft or whatever this thing was sat in that position for, like Lauren said, some 20 minutes. Then it disappeared. Now, typically, when people see something strange in the sky like this, I instantly think that they're misidentifying some sort of planet or star or something like that. 
Then from there, I start chiseling away at that theory. And here, in this case, I don't see how Lauren could be staring at three points that suddenly disappear. As far as celestial objects go, that's not really how they work. So I think all of that lends a lot of credence to the claims that Lauren made. And we've certainly heard our share of strange triangle craft here lately. Well, thanks, Lauren, for adding your submission to the pile. Now, this next story is spooky in a different way. Please welcome Caroline from Florida to the program. Hi, Derek. This is Caroline from Florida. I originally called in a story about seeing a large black UFO over my family's home in central Alabama. Well, I have another brief experience that happened to me at that same house, maybe when I was about eight or nine, so 2002 or 2003. This event is much more understated than seeing a UFO and feels a little bit silly to talk about, so I don't talk about it with many people, but I hope it's just weird enough to be on the show. My parents and I lived out in the country, and we didn't go out much since we're all homebodies, the three of us, but one night my parents decided we should go out for dinner. And we went to the closest steakhouse-style restaurant, which was about an hour away. So it took us an hour to get there, probably an hour to eat, and then an hour to get home. So in total, we were away for three hours, and it was dark when we got back. Everything was normal when we got into the house, and then I went into my room, and one thing was noticeably out of place. A hot glue gun was plugged into an outlet on one of the walls in my bedroom that hadn't been there when we left for dinner. So I was a really crafty kid and had lots of supplies and tools stored in different areas of the house. And yes, I did own a hot glue gun, but I hadn't used it in months and didn't even know where it was stored. The thing was plugged in, had a hot glue stick in the bag, and was propped up on its stand. So it wasn't laying on its side. Now, I think I would have remembered it if I had used a hot glue gun before we left for dinner. And it scared me for two reasons when I saw it. One, I was terrified of inanimate objects becoming animate as a kid, so I hated The Brave Little Toaster, didn't like that movie. And two, I was afraid that I had used it, forgotten to unplug it, and could have accidentally burned the house down. So the first thing I did was try to unplug it. I was scared of starting a fire. And before I did that, I felt the glue gun itself, and it was completely cold. Ooh, crisis averted, I thought, maybe it's broken. And then I felt the hardwood floor beneath it, and the floor itself was warm, verging on hot, but not the glue gun itself. There was no melted glue on the glue gun, nothing. It was just, it didn't make any sense. So I rushed to tell my parents about it, and they brushed it off as a weird thing and said neither of them had used it. And no one else had any access to our house besides my parents, no neighbors, no family, no one. So this incident is so small and dreamlike that I can almost brush it away as an imagining or misremembering, but I know I didn't dream it up, and it's a little thing that I've just never been able to explain. Anyways, I send my well wishes to you and your listeners for the rest of 2021. Bye. Thanks, Caroline. I'm one of those people. Terrified that I left something plugged in, or the oven turned on, or a candle burning, or who knows what. I worry, especially up here where we live. So I understand that nervousness, that concern, and to think that there's an invisible force in your house that possibly has the ability to set these little traps. That's downright terrifying. Getting haunted is one thing, but burning the house down is another. But thanks, Caroline, for taking the time to share. Now, I'm not much of a coffee drinker, so I've been in search of something I could sip on in the mornings to help get me going. So when Magic Mind reached out, I was excited to give them a try. Now, this awesome elixir is part of my everyday morning routine. It helps me avoid procrastinating and helps keep my energy steady throughout the day. Tonight's sponsor, Magic Mind, is a shot-sized drink that helps you focus and be more productive without feeling wired. And there's no energy crash to deal with. Now it has some caffeine, but it comes from matcha tea, which I was already a fan of before trying Magic Mind. Now, after a few days of use, I really started to notice that it was helping me feel more focused and dialed in. Anyone who does any kind of creative work knows it's not something you can snap a finger and turn on. 
but Magic Mind has really helped me battle writer's block and brain fog for weeks now. I'm not completely sure how any of this works, but it has 12 functional ingredients, including matcha, as I mentioned before, but also nootropics, which help with focus, and adaptogens, which help with stress. Now, I've really enjoyed Magic Mind over the past few months, and seeing how well it worked for me, I encourage anyone to try it out, especially if you're having trouble operating at 100%. This little bottle is a game changer. So if you'd like to give Magic Mind a try, head over to magicmind.co forward slash MAU, and you can use my coupon code MAU for 40% off your first subscription, or 20% off your first one-time purchase. My 40% code only lasts 10 days, so don't delay. And the best part is Magic Mind has a money-back guarantee, so you really have nothing to lose. Again, that's magicmind.co forward slash MAU for 40% off your first subscription or 20% off your first one-time purchase. There's also a link for you down in the show notes. Now, as always, supporting our sponsors supports the show, so thank you for listening. Now back to those weird scratches you just found. You guys better bust out that night vision because you're going to need it for this next entry from Cody in Pennsylvania. How you doing? My name's Cody. I live in the Lancaster, Pennsylvania area, calling to give my little story about a uh, Sasquatch I witnessed. I'm not sure exact month. It was about February. It was probably about 9, 9.30 at night on a winter's night. There was a lot of snow that fell throughout the week. We were out spotting deer in our vehicle, and we came to this open field where there was woods in the background. And I was spotting, obviously, for deer. We know how their eyes light up red, but they have like a little glow tinge to them. But when we first started spotting the field, there was power lines in the middle of the field, and we could see these tracks going out but they were big tracks like big feet and I didn't want to make the assumption of that but it was just weird they were very widely spaced out they were like big tracks it wasn't like snow because it was all in line like something walking way out into the field you could see it go out towards the woods and as we drove down the road a little further there was a wood line probably I don't know I, I couldn't tell you it wasn't super close but it wasn't super super far away and I was, I was taking the spotlight across the woods. We came across these two beanie, red, like bright red eyes. They had no glare, no nothing. And it was probably, judging we went by there in the daytime, and there was trees in the woods, but judging it was probably a good six and a half, seven feet tall to the one tree that we could see in the daytime about where the eyes were. But all we could see with the spotlight in the darkness was two beamy red eyes and it wasn't like a reflection of anything out there because it would like blink once in a while and I know like I I brushed it off maybe it wasn't but we spotted so many deer in the years since that we have never ever ever came across any deer that had beamy red eyes like this and then with how tall it was I drove by that spot many a times in my life because i drive by there weekly plus because we live in this area and where it was and where the tree line is it had to be at least six and a half seven feet and it it made me even more believe I I had my suspicions about sasquatches or or yetis but all I could see was the eyes and then the tracks in the snow it just put two and two together and it was one of the freakiest things I've ever experienced and I just I don't know. It's hard to explain in this day, but I, me and my wife both seen it. It wasn't just one person. We've tried to experience it days since and years since, because this has been now probably about five years plus. We've never, ever had any experience like that again. And it just, it's a freaky, freaky experience. But that's my story. And I just wanted to put it out there. But thank you. Bye. Thanks, Cody, for sharing. Now, your encounter sounds pretty extraordinary, but I will remind you to stay a bit grounded here. Always keep in mind that this could be some sort of creature on a limb on a branch. Specifically speaking, an owl. The creature has rather large, wide-set eyes. 
It also has a tendency to perch in branches and stare into the night. So I have no doubt, Cody, that you saw some sort of strange eye shine. But like I said, let's keep owls in the equation. Otherwise, Pennsylvania, and specifically that area of Pennsylvania, has its fair share of Sasquatch reports. And I didn't realize it when I put these calls together, but both Lauren and Cody's calls stem from Lancaster County. Maybe there's something weird going on over there. By the way, you guys keep your eyes open, and next time you see something strange, don't forget your camera. Now, folks, that brings us to our next entry, and this one is a strange one. Please welcome Will from Montana to the program. My name is Will Held. I'm from a little town in Montana. Hopefully you guys can hear me. I'm in a kind of a noisy machine here, but I have a story about something that happened to some friends and I last fall outside of White Sulphur, Montana. Um, every year we, we try and go on a camping trip, the boys and I do, um, if we can all make it. And uh, it was an area called Tenderfoot. It's kind of outside of White Sulphur, about 30 miles or 20-something miles. It takes a good hour or two to get back down in there. The roads are rough. There's pretty rugged country down in there, but, you know, it's a pretty good time. There's lots to look at. There's some good fishing back there, you know, et cetera. My brother and I had picked up two friends of ours in White Sulphur on the Friday that we were going for that weekend and uh, didn't get down there until late because we all worked during, you know, the day. That was kind of why we picked them up is because they were working too. We already had some friends down there. So we got down there probably about 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night. It was a pretty open night. It was in, I think it was the end of July. Got down there. Everybody was kind of settling down because they had, already been there a day prior they took the weekend off took some time off like i said it was a pretty clear night um we did some drinking not too much uh i don't drink a lot myself personally my brother was with us and we were all staying in hammocks and had one friend sleeping on a cot out in the open by the trees there was some tree cover above our camp but there was like a little grazing area for some cattle that were in the area right across the creek so it was pretty open on one side kind of a little valley where we were at and I, my mind always kind of goes to dark stuff anyways. You know, I've watched a lot of scary movies growing up as a kid. And so I always have that what-if factor in my mind. We all decided to go to bed. It was probably 11 or 12 by the time that, you know, we had all fallen asleep at that point. Um, there was a couple of us up. My brother and I and, and Derek, my good friend, um, was up until we decided to go to bed. Well, anyways, we get in our hammocks, and I eventually fall asleep. I had my dog in my hammock with me. She was laying, I have an Australian Shepherd. She was laying on my chest and, and just in hopes, you know, I had her in the hammock because um, I thought maybe she would growl or something that at a bear or whatever was sniffing the hammock if something did come into camp, you know, we had food out or whatever. And I fell asleep and I woke up, I don't, it must've been two or three hours later and she was, she, she was kind of growling in the hammock and I could hear things outside of the hammock and what I thought I was I was hearing things I don't know if I was imagining or or what but I heard her growling and kind of looking around inside the hammock she had her head picked up and I got really uncomfortable so I decided to step out of the hammock and when I did um, you know all my friends are snoring in their hammocks nobody's awake I had the worst back pain in my life and and it could amount to just the hammock but I've never felt that ill in my life I felt sick to my stomach I could barely stand up. I was kind of in a trance. I was kind of confused, more or less, but I just felt like I shouldn't be there near my friends anyway. I just felt like we shouldn't have been there at that point in time. I got the most disturbing feeling. And I decided to walk over to my buddy Jaron's hammock. He was sleeping, or maybe half sleeping, I'm not sure. And I woke him up and told him how I felt and, and that things didn't feel right. And, you know, I, I'm usually the level-headed dude. Like, yeah, you know, man, it's just everything's going to be all right. Go back to sleep. He was kind of giving me that speech. And things went on, and I could kind of see in his face that he was starting to get a little bit spooked about the way I felt. Well, we're sitting there talking for about 20 minutes, and I look up into the sky, and through kind of a not very healthy pine tree with some open spaces between the branches, I saw a really, really bright light in the sky. And when I really paid attention to it, I noticed that it was not the moon. The moon was in the other direction. 
across Canada. You know, oh, there's the moon right there. Well, what is that thing? It wasn't a star. It was super bright. And, you know, honest description, it kind of looked like a really bright LED headlight shining through the trees. And I couldn't really tell how far away it was. It seemed close. And when you looked at it, I rested my head up against the tree to look at it. It was kind of swaying back and forth. And so it was starting to get a little bit spooky to me. Jaren's like, you know, dude, you should just go back to sleep. Everything's going to be fine. I said, well, Jaren, you know, look at this light that I'm looking at here. Just look at it. And he sat up out of his hammock to look at it. And I kind of saw it set into him a little bit too. Like, oh, that that is pretty weird. So I'm sitting here not really believing what I'm seeing. And so I walked over to my friend, Derek's hammock to wake him up. Me and Jaren are up at this point. He got out of his hammock. He's a little bit spooked out. Um, you know, just because we couldn't really logically look at what we were, or explain what we were looking at. And it didn't make any sound or anything like that. It just sat there and floated. It almost looked like just a really soft but bright orb floating in the sky. And there was a bunch of tiny little lights flying in and out of it. When you really paid attention to it, they looked a lot further away, but it looked like they were flying right in and out of this life. And so I woke Derek up, and he's the kind of person that really doesn't like to be woken up. Um, he likes to sleep, doesn't like to be messed with in his sleep. We all kind of know that kind of stuff. But he woke up because I know he's kind of interested in the same thing. You know, as kids, we're like, man, how cool would it be if we seen a, a UFO in the sky or something like that? And so I woke him up just because of that. And Derek doesn't drink at all, so I didn't know if it was the, the beer that we had drank prior messing with us or anything. I woke him up, and sure enough, he saw this same damn thing that we did. And he sat there and looked at it with us for what seemed like half an hour to an hour, and we were just blown away by what we were looking at. And mind you, it was still very spooky to us because we were 30 miles from nowhere out in the middle of, you know, the mountains, on rugged roads, there wasn't going fast anywhere to get back to town or anything like that. Um, we were just kind of stuck there. It was just kind of disturbing. And it was probably the most fascinating but scary thing I've ever seen, just because it was so unexplainable and I felt so vulnerable. You know, I wonder what it would have been like if we were there by ourselves. Um, I can't explain why the dog, my dog, was was growling at the, the bushes and trees next to us. We were kind of spread out. I was kind of at the edge of camp. I couldn't explain any of that. And, you know, I'm kind of a nerd about airplanes and stuff like that growing up. I, I'm pretty up to par with what airplanes sound like or helicopters. You know, I've always been fascinated with military planes and stuff like that. That wasn't anything like that. Um, in my mind, it was pretty black and white that that was something out of this world. And I'll, I'll never forget that. And, and I still bring it up to my friends sometimes, you know, like, hey, well, not pretty weird. And they're like, yeah, that was probably some of the weirdest I've ever seen and so I felt like that night I kind of bit off more than I could chew you know when I was talking about how we always wanted to see a UFO or something like that that night I was like okay you know I heard this the next morning when we were talking about it I was like I'm probably good with not seeing something like that for for quite a while just because it was so spooky and I couldn't explain why why I felt the way I did why why I was so ill stuff so i guess take the story how you will it was just probably the most crazy thing i've ever seen i couldn't really explain it other than the fact that it was just something not horribly the ufo or something like that so anyways love your podcast love scary stories you know keep doing what you're doing and thanks for your time bye thank you will you know the story reminds me of an infamous uh encounter case that was known as the Allagash Incident, and it took place in northern Maine back in 1976. Four men, the Wiener Brothers, Jack and Jim, and their friends Chuck Rack and Charlie Fultz, were camping for two weeks in the Allagash Wilderness. And on several of the nights while they were out there, they saw a strange light in the sky. Well, on the third or fourth night of seeing this light, they were in a canoe in the middle of this lake and one of the gentlemen decided it would be a good idea to signal it. So he brought out the flashlight and performed a quick SOS with the beam. Well, to their surprise and probably horror, the strange light began to approach. And that's when they realized the light was nothing of this world. It was described as a tiny sun that lit up the area, made the treetops glow, 
and it was coming on them faster than they were able to paddle. Well, the next thing they knew, they found themselves on shore, and although they thought they had only been gone for minutes, they returned to find their massive bonfire, nothing but coals and ashes. It wasn't until 12 years later that a few of the men began to remember some of the incidents that took place. I won't spoil it for everyone, but there's certainly some abduction talk taking place there. And if you'd like to learn more, I actually linked to the original Unsolved Mysteries airing of this particular case. That was my introduction to the Allagash incident. Perhaps it could be yours. Just head over to the show notes or the description below. And thanks again, Will, for sharing your entry. Living where we live, Sarah and I cook at home a lot. And we both agree that one of the hardest things about cooking at home is deciding what to make. We always find ourselves falling back into the same routine. And our meals can get repetitive and unhealthy. Which is why we were really excited when Green Chef reached out to sponsor tonight's episode. Green Chef meal kits make eating well easy with plans that fit every lifestyle. Sarah has been bugging me to eat healthier lately but I'm not big on sacrificing taste. So we've both been happy with Green Chef's high quality ingredients, variety and creativity in their meals, while still offering those healthy options. We find Green Chef to be very convenient. The meals are delivered straight to your door and it saves time by cutting down on meal planning and grocery shopping. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well, and they now offer even more variety and flexibility than ever before. You can choose from 24 recipes weekly, with the option to mix meals from different preferences, so you can accommodate your whole family's dietary requirements. Green Chef is offering Monsters Among Us listeners an amazing deal, so head to greenchef.com forward slash Monsters Among Us 135 and use code Monsters Among Us 135 to get $135 off across five boxes. Plus, free shipping on your first box. Now that's greenchef.com forward slash monsters among us 135 with code monsters among us 135 for a cool $135 off across five boxes plus free shipping. Now as always, supporting our sponsors supports the show. So thank you for listening. Now what's that light out in the cornfield? Now, this last call is interesting. For starters, it's a very long call, so I apologize for that, but I thought it was too good not to share. Secondly, there's some discussion of violence towards children, perhaps you could say. So parental guidance is suggested. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Troy from Arizona to the program. Yeah, hi. Uh, my name is Troy. I'm a security guard in Phoenix, Arizona. And I believe over this past summer, around June or July, I encountered a skinwalker. For the record, I have lived in Arizona my entire life, 36 years, uh, born and raised desert rat. Uh, so I'm very familiar with the, the Native American culture here. I've had plenty of uh, interactions and friendships and relationships and so on with the Navajo or Diné uh, people throughout my life. Before I get to the story, I would like to tell you and the listeners what I've been told about skinwalkers from the mouths of actual uh, Diné people. So a skinwalker in their culture is basically an evil witch. And... In their culture, everything has its opposite. So the good guys are the uh, medicine men and the stargazers, and the bad people are the skinwalkers. Their actual name in the Diné language, I'm sure I'm going to butcher this, and I apologize to any native speakers of Diné or really just anyone with an interest in linguistics or foreign language. But the actual name for them, I think, is pronounced Yenokoshi, and... What they do in order to become a a skinwalker or an evil witch or whatever is they will have to kill someone that they love and care about. 
That doesn't just mean someone you're related to. That means someone that you genuinely have a feeling of love toward. Another thing that they do is they uh, desecrate ancestral burial grounds and or the bones of their ancestors. Um, I think that that that's supposed to be the Anasazi. I think they're supposed to desecrate Anasazi burial grounds and bodies or, or, or skeletons or whatever. How they use their magic on people is they will carry with them a bag of some sort. I don't know if the type of bag has any significance or not, but within that bag is powder. And the powder is composed of the ground-up remains of a stillborn baby. The reason for the skinwalkers having that little bag of ground-up stillborn bones or remains is that that's how they actually place their curses on people. They'll sprinkle it uh, like on the rooftop of their, their hogan or their house. They'll sprinkle it on their windowsill or doorstep or whatever. It's, it's almost like goofer dust or goofer powder in the voodoo and hoodoo religion. So that right there kind of plays into the whole Navajo thing and how this is very clearly an evil person. For starters, the Navajo have a very, I guess, sort of taboo thing about death. I had a, a Native religions teacher who was Navajo, and I think he said that if someone dies in a house, uh, that family will vacate the house and they will never you know, return. It, it's just a very taboo thing. And being a, a skinwalker flies in the face of that. Everything about their culture and their religion is twisted and turned a full, you know, 180 for the skinwalkers. So I just wanted to tell you that, again, this was all stuff that I was told by actual natives here in Arizona. And I'll go ahead and get to my story now about what happened to me. So as I, I think I said earlier, I am a security guard here in Phoenix. And uh, I've been doing it for now almost a year and this happened, like I said, over the summer, uh, June, July, somewhere around there. What had happened was I was assigned to this property that I went to every every day of the week that I worked. I, that was my first property. And it's in a very, very horrible part of town. Lots of gang activity, lots of theft, lots of homicide and rape and just all, all, all sorts of stuff. Just trust me when I say it is not all sunshine and old people out here but everyone at this apartment complex that i patrolled at was incredibly friendly I, I don't recall having any problems with any of the residents there it's low income lots of refugees from southeast asia africa and lots of you know people that that just can't really afford anything else and one of the guys who lived there with his girlfriend was uh, a, a native guy and Never had any problems with him. Never, if he was, in fact, he was always really friendly. Whenever I'd pull in to start my shift, uh, I'd see him with his girlfriend. You know, they'd be drinking a beer, listening to music out on the uh, back patio. And I'd park and we'd kind of chit chat for a little bit and then go on my way, say hi to him again if I saw him or whatever. But one night I was locking up one of the laundry rooms. They had to be locked at a certain time. So, I go to lock it up, and I, I start to hear him chanting, like screaming slash chanting in his language, obviously, which I know none of. As soon as I walked over there, he stopped, went inside, and I, I just kind of brushed it off. I was like, well, he's been drinking anyway, so no big deal. If it happens again, I'll talk to him. So some more time goes by. I don't recall how much, maybe... 30 minutes. Uh, this, this is a small complex, so I walked back and forth in it, you know, several times. And I see him coming down the stairs with his girlfriend and uh, his son, who I'd never met before. And he says, hey, bro, um, I'm going to need you to, to come with me. And I'm like, oh, God, what is going on? Earlier that day, there was an interaction with, with a, a guy and his girlfriend in the parking lot. She didn't live there. She was screaming. I told her she had to she had to split 
and I'm, I'm following the guy, his son, the, the, the native guy, not the guy from earlier, but I'm following him and his son and his girlfriend into the parking lot. And it, it was dark. It's not very well lit. But when they come into the light, as I'm walking behind them, I thought I saw his son with a huge knife. I mean, like a big Bowie knife. I got a little bit closer and I realized that it was actually a feather. It was just a, a giant feather. And his dad had two, like, really fluffy feathers that I'm, I, I think might have been from, like, a juvenile bird or something, or, or a younger bird, or however you want to say it. And I, I follow all three of them into the parking lot, pretty relieved that that is not a giant knife and is instead a uh, feather. And I see the woman from earlier who I kicked off the property. She was there with one of her sons that was maybe 10 and a kid and a stroller who, I mean, one or under, you know, and she's very, very clearly not happy with him. She's kind of not really yelling, but she's just talking very loudly to him and, you know, calling him all sorts of names and this and that. And he's just, you know, just relax, calm down, this and that. And he goes with those smaller feathers uh, that, that he has, he goes over to that stroller that her baby is in. And he starts saying something in, in, in their language that I, again, very obviously do not understand. And she starts freaking out. She's like, you, you, you get the hell away from my baby. You don't do that to him. And I'm going to kick the shit out of you and so on and so on. And how dare you do that to my child? And his son with the bigger feather is doing something to the, the older boy, the one that was about 10 years old. And he stands up after she, she almost gets physical with him, almost starts pushing him. And uh, he stands up and he's like, I'm not doing anything wrong. Look, I, I brought the security guard here. He's not going to let anything bad happen, this and that. And she, she looks over at me and she goes, he doesn't know what the hell's going on. And truer words have never been spoken. I have, at this point, no idea what I'm looking at. And she says, uh, if what you're doing isn't bad, then I want you to do it to her belly. And she, she pointed to his girlfriend who was pregnant at the time. Uh, he, like, he, he's not having that. He, he was trying to play it off, trying to deflect. He's like, no, no, I'm, I'm, this, is, this is for your baby. This is for, this is for him. It's not for mine and, and this and that. And he's trying to play it off. He's doing everything he can to not do it to her, her stomach is, is what I'm getting at here. He's trying his hardest. And eventually he steps over to his son and whispers something in his son's ear. And then the son goes over to her stomach and starts rubbing the larger feather on it. And he kind of, I, I don't know how to say it. He kind of snapped, he, he kind of snapped out of it. It was almost like he was in a daze and then he like woke up, you know, and he freaks out and he says, uh, uh, he's screaming. He's like, no, I'm not doing this. You, you know, dad, you're still evil. You're still a horrible person and I'm half Christian and I can't do this and, and just on and on and on. And he takes off running. Girlfriend and the dad are telling him to get back over there, you know, or get back over here, this and that. And then the dad takes off after him. And I'm kind of left in this parking lot with some crazy lady and her kids. The girlfriend went upstairs and I'm trying to get the crazy lady to leave the property because I already kicked her off once. And, but at the same time, still trying to be understanding that, you know, something very bad just happened here, I think. So I, I finally was just like, I'm not, okay, whatever. You're, you're just some crazy, you know, whatever in the parking lot. So I go taking off after the guy and his son. I couldn't find him. And they're, they're both, I, I'm not trying to be mean. They're both pretty big people. I'm not the smallest person, but I'm pretty sure I could have outrun them. And catching up to them shouldn't have been an issue. They were nowhere on the property. They were nowhere outside of the property. They took off towards one end of the property. I could not find them anywhere. I asked some people that were uh, kind of sitting outside of the property, hey, have you seen you know, these, these two guys? They all said no. So I, I just went back to the property. This took maybe a total of 10, 15 minutes and stopped looking for them. I was like, well, the hell with it. And I get back on the property, go to his apartment, 
where he would sit out on the balcony, uh, the second story apartment. And uh, when I saw him uh, sitting outside, he had this huge gash on his forehead, about probably a good three, three or four inch gash, maybe even a little bit bigger, actually. And his girlfriend was putting those uh, uh, butterfly bandages on it to hold it closed. And no doubt in my mind, it was a, a cause from a knife. And so I, I look up at him. I'm like, at this point, I'm just like, what the hell just happened, dude? And he's like, don't worry about it. You do not call the cops, though. I'm like, all right. You know, if you don't want me to call the cops, he's like, no, I believe he's like, dude, just trust me, bro. I don't want the cops involved in this and so on and so on. And I'm like, okay, man. So just basically left it at that. Um, I did. Yeah, I, I, I just said, you know, all right, well, I'll, I'll see you later then and hope you feel better and all that sort of stuff. Just went back to doing my job. So I searched and I found blood on the property that was fresh blood. I was like, well, this is obviously where it happened, but I, you know, there, there's no knife or anything. But like I said, I, I did mistake that feather for a knife. Anyway, I just went about my business and went on to my next properties and everything. Next day, I, I told the manager about what had happened. And he's like, he's like, uh, who, uh, who, who, who was this again? I told him who it was, and he's like, oh, oh, yeah, he's, he's man, he's, he's usually a pretty quiet guy and all that stuff, but you know, he's a convicted murderer, right? And I said, no, actually, I didn't know that. <laughs> and uh, turns out he did some time in prison for a manslaughter charge, and that you know, all all that stuff adding up and I'm, you know, kind of putting it all together in my head. And I think that that guy was for, I mean, was a skinwalker. I'm not going to go out and say that I think he can change into the shape of a coyote and chase people down and, you know, basically be a, a, a werewolf type creature or anything like that. I, I, I no, but I think that he might've been, one of those evil witches that a lot of natives have told me about. So, anyway, yeah, that's uh, that's that's my Skinwalker story. Never brought it up to him again. Didn't really want to. I, I, I didn't want to press the issue because I, I didn't want to just come out and ask. So, hey, hey, bro, are you by chance a Skinwalker? I didn't think that would go over too well. Anyway, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. And uh, love the show. Absolutely fantastic. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, that's it. Uh, have a good day. We're night. Wow. Thanks, Troy. You know, I think there's a moral in there somewhere. Be careful who you trust. You never know who somebody really is. It's a terrifying story in reality. Because we don't know what that gentleman's intentions were. And I certainly can't help but think that maybe Troy was somehow able to prevent something tragic from taking place. Simply from him being there. And I certainly can't tell you if what Troy is telling us is true or not. Sounds like he knows what he's talking about, though. And it certainly falls in line with the other legends I've heard and read about the infamous Skinwalker. So I had a thought while I was processing all of this, Troy... If you know the gentleman's name, perhaps you can look up arrest records, court cases, find out exactly what the circumstances were around his murder case. I think we might find that if he committed the crime against someone he loved, you might just be onto something. And truth be told, I don't know what's more terrifying, knowing that's the case, or not knowing at all. Thanks again, Troy, for sharing that incredible story. And a big thanks to you for listening to the show. Because that's going to do it for this episode. Monsters Among Us Beyond is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. And the terrifying score you hear. Well, it's Co.ag Music and Carl Casey at White Pad Audio. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you even more for the support. 
And until next time.